0: Welcome to Mecham Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. It's the show geared toward keeping you up to speed with the latest auto news, event coverage, and expert industry insight. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Avery and John Cramon.
1: Hey, and welcome to another On The Move. My name is Matt Avery. I'm executive producer of The Transmission, and joining me is co-host John Crayman, lead TV commentator for Mecham Auctions on NBCSN. John, we have such a special show today. In segment two, you and I are on the road and on the move, headed down to Ocala, Florida, to sit down for a special one-on-one conversation with one of the all-time legends of drag racing. One of his cars is on display in the Smithsonian and Washington, D.C., it is Big Daddy Don Garlitz.
2: NHRA drag racer rated number one of all time, Matt. And uh, tying in with that, really like what we're doing with a, a bit of a theme today, uh, the influence on drag racing over sales, particularly during the 1960s and the early 1970s. We've got uh, my compadre from the TV show, Bill Stevens, coming on. Bill is uh, was a reporter for NHRA events for years. He's an author and has a lot of knowledge and insight, and it's going to be fun to to have a three-way conversation between you and I and Bill
1: coming up for our segment three. That ought to be some fun today. John, as we emerge from winter into spring, that means we've got a whole slew of Mecham auctions. Give us an idea what's in store for the months ahead. Let's just take it through the first half of the year, Matt. Seven auctions in the first
2: half. It's going to be a strong year. Keeping in mind, we're still riding high in the success of Mecum January with a record $141 million in sales. That ties in very nicely to what we saw really starting with June, uh, once we got back to auctions for 2020, again on a record-setting pace, including an all-time record for the Spring Classic, which was first held all the way back in 1988. Anyway, what this says is, is 2021 should be a very strong year for Mecom Auctions and the collector car market in general. Next up, Glendale, Arizona. That's Phoenix. at at the State Farm Stadium. That'll be March. Also, our good friends at Gone Farming. Uh, having their Spring Classic in East Moline Houston, April. Denver, also April. Vegas Motorcycles has been pushed back from January to uh, April 20th through May 1st at the Las Vegas Convention Center, world's biggest vintage motorcycle auction. Of course, the big spring classic, Indy, and that is going to be in mid-May. And then Tulsa, brand new venue for us. That will be June. So that takes us really through the first half of the year with a very brisk schedule. Now, I do want to recommend everybody, as we've been saying over the past couple a podcast. This is a great time to sell your vehicle at a Mecham auction. Do not hesitate uh, at all. These auctions are being done safely and they're being done very successfully. So look forward to continuing uh, a very, very strong uh, auction schedule as we start getting into the new year. Now, hey, We've got uh, Meekum Monthly has hit on the Meekum website,
1: and you've got uh, a couple of things to talk about uh, that you put together for that issue. Well, first up was a big feature called Million Dollar Mustangs, and Meekum Auctions has sold the most expensive classic Mustangs at auction. Anywhere on the planet. And so it was a roundup of the top five. And John, little surprise, the names on the list are going to be very familiar because they are cars of extreme historical significance. They brought millions of dollars and it's vehicles like the GT350R Flying Mustang. It's the GT500 Super Snake. It's Bullet. And of course, Eleanor, one of the movie cars from Gone in 60 Seconds. So it was looking at each of those five cars and detailing what made them so special and why they brought such high figures when they crossed the block. And then in my free revs column, it was looking at a very different but very special car, and that is the 2021 Jaguar F-Type Heritage 60 Edition. John, it has been 60 years since Jaguar's E-Type was launched in March of 1961, and so the brand is celebrating that by taking kind of the modern iteration, the F-Type, and offering a special edition. Just 60 will be built. All of them are coming in a special Sherwood green paint which is a color that was an E-type color from the 60s, but hasn't been seen since. Each of these cars gets a special numbered plaque, and I'm sure they will be future collectibles. Now, what about you, John? I know in your column, you're always exploring different areas of the classic car world. What were you looking at this time? Yep, at the red line is my monthly column,
2: and I'm just going to do a little teaser. It is called Full Circle, and I'll just let you know kind of what that means. You'll have to go to Meekum.com and, and thumb through to find the column. But essentially, it is uh, just a little bit of a summary of my lifelong love affair with Corvette starting the early 1960s when I saw my very first uh, Corvette Stingray Fastback, the all-new 63 split-window coupe, and all the way through the modern day, through obviously my delivery of the brand-new C8 Corvette. So, invite me to uh, tune into that. Hey, let's uh, let's delve into a little bit of car
1: news, and I think the priority today is going to be uh, on trucks. One hundred percent, John. Man, what a. Start of the new year with all kinds of truck news. Let's start off with uh, the release from Nissan of the all new third gen Frontier. John, it is hard to believe that the Nissan Frontier, the second gen, the outgoing platform, had been around since 2004 without really any kind of significant update. Well, that has now changed, and Nissan has given it a really nice look. It's completely new from the ground up. It's got a really chiseled look. I saw a lot of uh, Toyota Tacoma when I I saw it, but out very contemporary. Um, It will come standard with a 3.8-liter V6 with 310 horsepower and 281 pound-feet of torque. That gets paired to a 9-speed automatic. And one of the nice things, John, is that little surprise that they have said that the popular Pro 4X, the little more off-road package is part of the rollout, and that will include additional off-road features like an electronic locking differential, off-road shocks, and skid plates. So Nissan is definitely thinking ahead because that market, which we'll get to next, that is red hot.
2: Well, it is, Matt, especially in regard to the full-size truck market. Of course, the Frontier being a you know real player in that midsize market that I think is going to see continued strength. But right now, of course, the big news across the board with trucks is the continued uh, interest and escalation from all the manufacturers towards serious off-road trucks. Now, whether or not these trucks are actually used off-road uh, in a serious manner in which they're intended, they're just halo vehicles uh, that will remain to be seen but as you and I have talked about, the official announcement has come from Ford that the all-new platform uh, of the F-150, the very popular F-150, the Raptor is coming back. What I'm a little bit surprised to hear is that they have not gone with a V8 engine as standard equipment. They have carried over the second-gen Raptor power plant, that twin-turbo 3.5-liter V6. No horsepower rating yet, but I'm expecting it to be in the mid-400 horsepower range. Uh, Will be available shortly. Now that I've said that, rumors continue to fly that an upgraded, upscale Raptor performance version with a V8 engine of some type and possibly even a supercharged V8, which is currently available in the GT500 Mustang platform, uh, is likely to become available in that. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to stay tuned to exactly what Ford has up their sleeve for continuing to push that muscle truck serious uh, off-road contender. What do you think of the news of the new
1: Raptor? It's clear that Ford has a very specific strategy with this rollout, and part of that is purposely downplaying output, and there's very good reason for that because, as you pointed out, the 3.5-liter EcoBoost that it will be equipped with will more than likely deliver somewhere in the mid-400-horsepower range, and it's very respectable. That's very capable off-road, but that is certainly no match to Lockhorns with the current dino truck, king of the hill, the Ram TRX with that 6.2 liter Hemi with 702 horsepower. Ford knows that. I think it's smart. Go ahead, bring the truck to market, but also put the word out there that a Raptor R with that V8 is coming. That gives them time to get the buzz out there to get their fan base excited. and It also sends the message that, hey, Raptor's not king today, but that might be changing very soon. What's been interesting to watch is the efforts of General Motors because while they're in the background they do have a contender in this world of off-road trucks in the form of the Silverado with the Trail Boss package that brings upgrades like a two-inch suspension lift the Z71 off-road package bigger wheels and tires and you can get a V8 with 420 horsepower but it does seem clear that Chevrolet does not want to take the bait jump into this escalating horsepower war at least not for now and uh, it's certainly a player but a player in the background.
2: Yeah, I kind of call that one Raptor Light, and we're going to include the GMC Sierra AT4 companion vehicle as well, and you're right, Matt. They have taken what is already a pretty good off-road vehicle, and they brought that up an extra notch. And um, not sure that it's going to be quite up to the caliber of uh, the Raptor or the Ram TRX, but certainly for General Motors fans, in the meantime, while they continue to explore and figure out how they want to pursue this muscle truck market, that is a really good performer. By the way, that 6.2 liter 420 horsepower engine that you mentioned has pretty much universally been lauded by all of the various press and experts as if not the best, or one of the best truck power plants out there right now. Very, very potent engine, gets surprisingly good fuel economy. And uh, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. We'll see if GM uh, in general, uh, no pun intended, uh, decides to get a little bit more serious down the road. We'll be keeping an eye on it.
0: Mecham Auctions is proud to bring you On the Move with Matt Avery and John Craman. For more on the world of collector cars, head over to Mecham.com. Now let's get back to the show.
2: I am so proud and so honored to be here with the NHRA number one driver of all time. And I'm going to guess that's going to stay that way. We're here with Big Daddy Don Garlitz at his Museum of Drag Racing in Ocala, Florida. By the way, this museum is open to the public uh, every day except for Thanksgiving and for Christmas Day. And it is truly the holy grail, ground zero for not only the entire history of drag racing, but also in vintage cars in general, well over 100 years of automotive history here and uh, over 300 cars. That having said... Big, thank you so much for inviting Matt and I here to not only take a look at the museum, but to chat with you today. It's much appreciated. It's truly an honor.
3: You're certainly welcome. It's nice to have you.
2: Well, I want to begin, uh, Big, a big day in your life, a life that's embedded in all of us vintage drag race fans. Let's go back to March eighth, 1970. I call it the rear engine revolution, and that is when uh, you were involved in a horrific accident that led to the modern-era drag racer. How did how did that come into your mind as thinking maybe the transition from front to rear-engine cars might be the wave of the future, as it was?
3: Well, I had seen rear-engine cars on numerous occasions. There was a couple of pretty good ones out there, even at the time, Bernie Shackler and uh, Dennis Alm had them. They were good cars. They hadn't won any big races, and so nobody was paying any attention to them. But then going way back in the beginning, there was Ollie Morris's White Owl. so engine cars were possible. They just hadn't been winning any races. But the time had come when the sport had become so dangerous it was time to see if we couldn't get these things to work. And also another driving factor was the fact that in 1964, the, uh, w- the runner-up at Indianapolis was a rear-engine car who maneuvered around in the traffic at over 200 miles an hour. So it didn't seem possible to me that they were a failure it just seemed like they needed some work and uh, of course it did it took a lot of work to get them up to par
2: when do you feel when did you break over the point from having such a successful career with the top front engine cars how long did it take you to get the rear engine car totally refined to the point where it also was a dominant car
3: (laughs) well that's kind of a funny story (laughs) It took three months of testing to be able to get down the track, and it was one minor adjustment on the car, and all of a sudden it went straight. It was slowing the steering down. But I never thought that the rear-engine car would be a dominant factor in the sport. I had hoped that it would give me a few more years of competitiveness before I retired. But the thing just stepped right up. I mean, within six months— it was dominating the sport. we went to Indianapolis and went six point two one seconds uh, and they couldn't believe it and Of course the e t was the holy grail of drag racing, you know, but to me it was always a mile per hour and uh once the car was dominating in the competition, it was over for the slingshot.
2: yeah, let's talk a little bit real briefly about some of the landmarks and some of the success that you've had over the years. First drag racer to go 170, 180, 200, 240, 250, 270 miles per hour, and the first to hit 200 miles per hour in the eighth mile. You have won 17 national championships, a spread between HRA, ITRA, and NHRA. 144 national event wins. An incredible career. So how did all of that come together for you to think that these cars – from your past might be so important that in about 1976, you decided to put them on display and open up a museum to show everybody these cars and the history.
3: Well, I never really wanted to sell my really good cars to competitors because they had tricks on them. I didn't want them to know my secrets. (laughs) So most of the cars that were sold were sold to corporations sponsors for display with the agreement that when they got rid of them, I'd get them back. And so I had all these cars all stacked up, and my wife and I traveled to England in 1976, and we saw all these automotive museums, and the people just loved them. The English were just, they fell in love with all these things. And uh, they carried us around, and I just casually made a statement, gosh, we need a drag racing museum. And, uh, (laughs) And my British guide said, well, why don't you build one? And so my wife and I discussed it, and we came back to America, and we built one. But it wasn't successful. For six years, we had it in Sefner, and nobody came. Uh Just the sponsors and the photographers, the journalists, the friends, the relatives, uh, but nobody who paid money. And my wife, who was a comptroller in the business in 1982, said, what are we going to do with this white elephant when you can't race anymore and support it? And I said, I always thought I'd move it to the interstate. And, of course, that got a rise because we're living <laughs> on the property that I inherited from my father, whose who, mother and fa- who, who him, him and my mother hacked it out of the wilderness in 1927. Sixty-five beautiful citrus trees on the grounds, our California ranch home, the shop, the lake, everything. And uh, it was something to give all that up. But this was the way to go. Because from no visitors from six years, the first year we weren't even open, we sold 11,000 tickets. And then when we officially opened, we had 27,000. And we run around 50,000 a year. Wow,
1: good number. Now, you explained how you were able to save so many of your vehicles, but in the museum, there are so many other pieces of memorabilia that tell your story. There are pictures and magazines and clothing and tools and engines and all kinds of other stuff. Big, how in the world did you go about saving all of that stuff?
3: This is a (laughs) one-liner. My father said to me one day when I was real small, Never throw anything away because when you do, someday you'll need it. Mm -hmm. And I've lived by that. And I've only thrown stuff away a couple of times. And he was absolutely right. I did need it. (laughs) So I tried to – and we had warehouses full of this stuff. And my wife was complaining. But we had money. We could support it, you know. But she, one day she said – this was before we actually got the museum. She says, what are you going to do with all this stuff? I said, well, I, I just sarcastically said, we could start a museum. And she just laughed because museums never made any money. <laughs> I can't name you one museum that's profitable. They live off of grants. Ah. This one is completely self-supporting, but it's a location. A quarter of a million cars go by here every 24 hours.
2: I want to say you've got a new book out called Don Garlitz and His Cars in its third edition. And uh, I just want to uh, mention for our listeners, uh, before I forget, definitely you want to check it out. I'm taking a copy home with me. And uh, you can get uh, information on ordering that at Garlitz.com. And uh, Big will be glad to sign a copy of that when you place your order. So uh, highly recommended. Much appreciated that uh, you're able to keep us all informed of the history and where it's gone, This is uh, books like this are going to help keep all of that alive. So, man, you've accomplished a lot. Number one drag racer really of all time, and you're one of the sport's best ambassadors as well, and that comes from the bottom of my heart. What have you got for the future? You've got a birthday coming. Up. You're going to be, what, 89 here in a week or two? Yeah, January the 14th, I'll be 89. Oh, my word. What have you got for the future for, for uh, Big Daddy Don Garlitz?
3: What have I got planned? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm still messing with the electric dragster. You know, the COVID nineteen really put the skids under me. I, I should have went 200. I didn't. Uh, my friend Huff went 201 with his dragster in, uh out in California, out in Spokane, Washington, okay. and uh, we just couldn't get to the tracks. And then in the meantime, we lost some batteries. But there's some new battery technology that's just stuck its head up. That's going to change everything in the electric car world. Okay. It's a battery that will charge in about the same time you can put gas into your car, which is big, and it will go at least three times the distance, like 1,000 miles now. So nobody needs more than a 1,000-mile range, you know, and then to charge your battery in 15 minutes. So this, this is called the uh, quantum glass battery okay and it's all brand new and um, uh, that's what i hope to get now for this car and uh, that will give me more power my we put some computers on her holly is helping us a lot they got on board which was big and uh, they put the computers on the car the race pack computers and we found that this was the motor was sucking so much electricity out of the battery that it had all this nice power to start with 1,200 horse. By the time we got to the end, it's only making 500 horse. Oh, okay. You can't do that. It's got to stay the same all the way. So that's going to be a big plus. So we'll get that straightened down. And we probably go right, blue, blow right through the 200, maybe 215, 220, who knows.
1: Now, along those lines, it's clear that you have no intention of slowing down. You love the sport. You love the thrill of competition, but you've set record after record, and yet you keep coming back. Why is that?
3: Well, I've just always liked speed. Even when I was a little kid, I never get my dad in the car, saying, told my mother, I'm in the back and with my brother, and standing up behind the seat, it's a 35 Ford, And he says, Helen, I'm going to show you 60 miles an hour. And we were just running 35, which was about what everybody ran on the highways in from between Tampa and Sefner. And he just stepped down on that speedometer, cripped right up right past the 50, right over to 60. And my mother was just screaming, you're going to kill us all. And I wanted it to go right on down to the (laughs) (laughs) 100.
1: Now, Big, when you look at the world of competitive racing, are there big changes ahead? I know you are very active with furthering electric powertrains. Do you see other competitors jumping on board, or is there still something about that internal combustion engine that will have it remain for many more years to come?
3: Well, the combustion engine will always be there. It'll always be one to use for racing. It's exciting. It makes lots of noise. Uh, I I say it'll be around forever, but the electric car definitely has its place, and the electric dragster has its place. There'll be lots of places you can run an electric dragster where they have noise abatement laws, and it'll be just fine. And it I, I always envision it as a very inexpensive way to race. Once you get the bugs worked out of it, it's just charge the battery and go. And no clutches to completely rebuild. All of this stuff is uh, engines not to be rebuilt. You just have to charge a battery. And uh, the, the, like I say, when the battery technology has, it gets better and better. It will be a class there will be a lot of people want to be involved in. I, I think NHRA, they're all putting electric classes in. And, you know, the factories are all involved. They've got electric cars. And they're racing them. They're Tesla's got, I got in a stock Tesla and and ran 12 and a half seconds in the quarter mile, Mm. just a a showroom car. So there's a lot of room for electric drag racing, but the combustion engine ain't going anywhere. Don't kid yourself. It's going to be with us. And we, we got lots of oil and that's energy that's stored that we don't have any trouble getting to for all practical purposes. It's just like we got a great big reservoir of it. So it's energy that we're going to be able to use forever and people that wanna just get completely off of it are nuts. The, the the oil is a and coal is good energy. It's here, we should use it, and we should use our solar and all of it and the electric too, but they're going to need these coal-fired and these oil-fired plants to make the electricity for the electric cars, for God's
2: sake. Right
1: <laughs> Now, electric is really the forefront of technology today. But, Big, when you think back over your many years of competition, what were some of the other milestone innovations that you recall?
3: Well, the supercharger, naturally, it changed everything. The tire, the development of the tires, and then, of course, the onboard computer. You take the onboard okay. computer off these cars, and they'd all slow down in a year. You, they couldn't go near as fast as they go now, if they had to just guess at everything. That computer is everything now. Fine. And, and and the wing, okay, for down pressure, the arrow,
2: yeah, the arrow. Uh, last question, big. Um, you've got three hundred incredible cars. It litter. I'm going to tell people if you come down here, plan on spending at least a half a day and maybe even a full day to be able to really soak in the experience. I really especially enjoyed your collection of pre-war Flathead V8 Fords right to my heart. But that having said, I'm going to put you on the spot. If you could pair this, had to pair this down to only having one car left in your personal collection, is there a single or favorite there?
3: You mean now that collection of where, is there a single car? Yeah. Yes, there is.
2: Yes. What is it?
3: It's the 42 Mercury Convertible. Yeah, we saw it. One of eight in the whole world, and that's probably the best one. And it's all totally original. In other words, if you saw that car in two with a big saw, it's just as nice inside the door panels and all as it is outside. It Nothing's been covered up.
1: And what's the story of how you acquired it?
3: Well, uh, they're very rare. And I got a phone call here a long time ago in the 90s, and a guy says, do you know what a 42 Mercury convertible is? I said, yeah, I know what it is. I said, I've never seen one, but I've seen pictures of them. I know they're rare. He said, I've got one, and you can have it if you want it. And I said, where is it? He said, it's in Tampa. I said, why are you doing this? He says, well, he said, I've had this car a long time, and he said, I had a heart condition. I had to go to the hospital and my daughter moved into the house and the car was in the garage and I was in the restoration and she moved it out under an oak tree and just put some baby furniture where the car was sitting and I come out of the hospital and I was in there six months and it was all starting to rust and everything and I'm I'm sick, and I'm weak, and I'm just not able to do anything with it. And I know that you can do the job. And he said, I'd love for this car to be finished properly. And if if I thought you could do that or would do that, you could just have it. Then I would know it would be preserved for history. So I went down and got it, and we took that thing apart, and we worked on it. I mean, we diligently It's There's all kind of special things about the 42s that you just can't get the parts. And it was almost like a magic deal. There's that emblem that goes on the trunk that says Mercury for the handle. You can't get that because they didn't do well with that pop metal then. Mm -hmm. And most people just put the 46 Ford on there instead. And I was walking through Hershey just down the lines. You ever been to Hershey? Oh, yeah. And it was a box of stuff sitting by the trail. And I something told me, go over and look at that. And I looked at it. And there was one of these Mercury deals right in there. I couldn't believe my eyes. And that was the last thing I needed to make the car perfect. And uh, it's just such a treasure to me because I participated, me and Al Parker, who's retired now and in California, got cancer. And he was my body paint man. And we did that all together. The, head, the engine is absolutely correct. There's a different head on each side. They're not the same head on each side of the 42 Mercury okay. engine. They had a little tiny different compression on one side because they were having a heat problem. And there's two different numbers, and this car has the correct numbers. All right, and uh, it's got the uh, Columbia overdrive in it. Yep. it. And it's so nice and so smooth. And it, if I had to just take one and they say, we're going to destroy all the rest, and you have one car, that's the one I'd take.
2: Well, and limited production because, obviously, World War II uh, exploding and the U.S. getting involved with it and ending production very early in the 1942 run of automobiles. Big, we... Cannot stress enough how much this has meant to us. Visit your facility. Spend some time talking with you today. You're a familiar site at Mecham Auctions from time to time as well. Obviously, you're always welcome there. And I just got to tell anybody that's listening, this is, should be the number one visit uh, on your bucket list is to come visit your facility and take a trip through automotive history unlike anything else in the world. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you for having
0: us. Don't adjust that dial. On the move, we'll be right back. Our program is proudly presented by Meekam Auctions, the world's largest collector car auctions. Now back to Matt and John.
2: Hey, joining Matt and I are our friend, my compadre on Mecham Auctions on television on NBCSN, Bill Stevens. Bill has a long history with various forms of motorsport, covering it for television over the years, road racing, uh, oval tracks, drag racing. Uh, He's a writer and he's also more importantly, he's an enthusiast as well. So really happy to have Bill uh, on board here this morning. Bill, let's kick things off. Our our topic is going to be what influences did, drag racing in particular, have on motorsports. Let's go back to the early 1960s. You were just starting to get your early car chops as a youngster. Where did you see it all begin?
4: Yeah, you know, I had the great uh, 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 advantage of being a teenager during the muscle car era when a teenage fellow uh, who loves cars uh, would be just uh, ecstatic about all the performance cars coming out of Detroit. But let me quickly go back. Um, because people don't discuss this too much. The whole idea of high-performance cars for the masses actually goes back to the 20s and 30s when, you know, cars like the Duesenberg and and Auburns and cars like that and even Packards and Cadillacs with huge engines uh, really became the cars of prestige. Uh, If you had a fast car, you had a little bit more vig in the neighborhood than your neighbor did. The thing that changed in the 60s was suddenly high-performance cars were available to people who weren't wealthy. Um, suddenly, if you love the high-performance car, they were no longer priced beyond your reach. And, of course, when the muscle car era began, uh, and uh, the baby boomers were getting to a point in their lives where they had some expendable income, and they didn't want to drive their, their dad's or their mom's cars. They wanted a car that was more in line with their lifestyle. I mean, that was the perfect storm. It all came together. And then... The natural progression was once muscle cars started hitting the streets. Well, you know, Detroit uh, realized that, you know, if we build a car that's faster than the ones they're building across the street all these young guys are going to want to buy our cars. And the most accessible kind of racing at that time for any young man was drag racing. Um, Wally parks had established the NHRA drag strips were popping up all over the country. Even those old uh, airport runways that the youngsters were running on back in the mid fifties before drag strips came along, they were being converted to real uh, drag strips uh, for guys to bring their cars and race. So it, it was such a tumultuous period Um, In high performance automobiles, the young men that wanted to go fast, the manufacturers realizing that they needed to build cars that were competitive and maybe just a little bit faster than what the other uh, manufacturers were building and drag racing itself on a growth curve uh,
1: that, that just showed all these moving parts coming together. So drag racing is taking off and auto manufacturers are taking notice because the cars that are coming in first place are the ones that spectators and customers want to go out and acquire for themselves. The big three start to ramp up their performance car programs. Bill, walk us through what did each of those efforts look like? Yeah, and even AMC got on board a little bit later than the
4: other guys. But by the end of the 1960s, you had four manufacturers that were duking it out for the high ground in high performance. Um uh, Chevrolet Pontiac had a great program going up until 1963. They had uh, the Z11 program, which was highly successful at the time. Uh, Bill Grumpy Jenkins was just a terror in, in those Z11 cars uh, that were almost unbeatable. The Super Duty Pontiacs, uh, uh, again, just just dominant race cars. And then the music stopped in 1963. GM went into that racing band that As we look back at, it was more a gentleman's agreement, and uh, there were some racers out there running General Motors products that got a little bit of, uh, shall we say, uh, out the back door assistance, Mm -hmm. but it, it was all about... Uh, cubic inches. It was all about advertised horsepower. It was all about having a car that a manufacturer built, being on the front page of Hot Rod Magazine or Drag News, uh, 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 winning a major NHRA event or even a big match race or something. So each manufacturer threw all kinds of money. Their budgets were just almost completely devoted to bringing out new powertrains and new options and advertising campaigns. God, when you were a teenager, if you're my age, you'd put on the television, and there was the GTO Tiger. Uh, you saw the Corvette uh, when in 1963 when the C2 debuted. First time America saw it was on television. Um, uh, the Mopar people uh, they, they were tearing it up in NASCAR. Uh, you know, uh, every manufacturer had some kind of a racing program. But you know what? In, in, as much as they were, de- the seven degrees of separation w- really didn't apply there because they all applied the same formula. Uh, and that was make them big, make them fast, make them exciting, have the right promotion and marketing behind them that would get people all stirred up, get them to the showrooms. And and it worked. It worked. It was, it was the salad days for... Detroit, no question.
2: You know, really, the the pre-muscle car era of the early 1960s began with uh, large displacement engines, 427 cubic inches being the displacement limit that was accepted by the auto manufacturers in general uh, as a maximum engine size. They all got on board. Ford had a program called Total Performance from the 406 to the 427. And it evolved into that, the Mopar Max Wedge engine. This is prior to the 64 GTO, which started the muscle car era, prior to the street Hemi, Uh, Which came out in 66 and a race hemi even in 1964. So it was really an interesting twist of fate that the success of all of these cars definitely brought people, buyers to the showrooms and sold a lot of cars but it wasn't until 1964 when things really changed when a car was developed for street performance with an image never really intended to have any type of a racetrack heritage, although eventually it did have some in drag racing and that was the 1964 Pontiac GTO, the car that changed everything. 5,000 were planned in the debut year. Most of GM Brass were not on board with that car but 32,450 of those things were built and that kickstarted and launched the muscle car era, which was a high performance street car. Bill, what are your thoughts in regards to the evolution of the basically street legal race cars uh, prior to the GTO and then the sensation of the GTO hitting the showrooms as a high performance street car?
4: Well, as we've uh, talked about any number of times on the broadcast when anybody wants to tell me that the GTO is not the first muscle car, I just say, end of discussion. There's <laughs> yeah. really no place to go here because I lived through it. I was there. And uh, everything you say is so true, uh, J.K., about um, how uh, the manufacturers, um, you know, used the whole aura, the whole uh, halo effect of performance to excite the public. And the GTO changed the, the the whole mantra of detroit um because this was the first time that the engine from a big car was dropped into a small car and the marketing and the advertising just dovetailed perfectly with it. It it, it was a lifestyle-changing car for people. Uh, Ronnie and the Daytonas sang a song, Little GTO, uh, you know, Uniroyal. They used the GTO to market their Tiger Paw tires. Um, no other car did that. Uh, it, it, it was just a, a, a shift almost entirely in the mindset of what uh, uh, Detroit's uh, image of a muscle car was. And, um, and that was, uh, that was a, a sea change for everybody. And, of course, after the GTO, everybody started building muscle cars. So there
1: you go. Now, in your opinion, after the GTO, what are some of the other milestone muscle cars that came out of the 1960s? Boy, there are so many.
4: Uh, well, as uh, JK uh, mentioned before, uh, the Street Hemi came along in 1966. Uh, it had already proven itself in racing in NASCAR, so much so that they banned it uh, uh, from NASCAR uh, f- for a short time. And then in 1966, uh, you could get a 425-horsepower Hemi in your street car. Uh, look at what Chevy was doing. Uh, th- th- that racing ban kind of petered away after 1963. And before you knew it, they were putting 396s and... Uh, uh, and 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 big block cars and 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 the, uh, the Chevelle and the Nova, uh, the full size Chevy of course, the Corvette in 1965. Uh, General Motors jumped in with both feet after that. That as I say, that racing band kind of petered away. And Ford, total performance program, absolutely. Uh, and of course they hitched their wagon to Carroll Shelby Star in 1963, and th- that was uh, just an, uh, an incredibly powerful uh, time for Ford. Uh, with dominance in so many kinds of motorsport. So when you say, you know, what cars, you know, what landmark cars came along, you know, throw a dart. Uh, You know, even General Motors with all the brands that they have, they had... Uh, you know, uh, Grand Sport 455 Buicks and, the, of course, the 442 W30s. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, and of course, uh, the Pontiac evolved from the, the 389 uh, eventually up to the 455 and on and on and on. And so by 1970, 1971, if you weren't bringing at least 400 horsepower to the table, you didn't count. And, uh, and every manufacturer knew that they had to have as much armament as the next guy.
1: Now, another big part of this story of promoting performance was happening at the dealership level, where during this time, all around the country, numerous dealerships are sponsoring racers, developing their own internal speed parts departments, and even putting together full vehicle programs. Bill, when you think about some of the more notable names that were making a lasting impact, what are the ones that come to mind?
4: Well, uh, the first name that comes to mind is Don Yenko. Um, he is the man uh, that's responsible for you know the Copo Camaro becoming such a landmark car in history. Uh, he, he built you know these hellaciously fast uh, c- Camaros with four twenty sevens that uh, became so popular at the racetrack that Don Yenko had to talk GM into dropping the four twenty seven in of the factory because. Uh, the ones that he were building weren't legal in some of the stock classes in NHRA. They weren't really factory considered factory stock cars. Um, you, you know, you take a look at Ford. You look at TASCA Ford uh, in Providence, not far from me. They established a performance history that uh, probably unmatched by any other dealer in the country. Uh, old man Bob TASCA responsible for the Cobra Jet Mustang. Uh, He was a street racer, and he convinced Ford, they got to put that 428 Cobra Jet motor in the Mustang because these General Motors cars are whipping up on us. Uh, You know, you go to Fred Gibb in St. Louis, uh, the ZL1, that was his baby, uh, and uh, that became a legendary race car as well. So, yes, there were dealerships that had as much
2: to do with the success of these muscle cars sometimes as uh, Detroit did. Well, the Mopar guys had the advantage of Mr. Norm's Grand Spalding Dodge in the Chicago area doing the very same thing. I think this is a good way to kind of put an exclamation point on just really what was the influence of the success and the notoriety of cars on the drag strip as they uh, pertain to the popularity of these cars in the big sales in the 60s and, of course, popular today on the collector car market and I think that there's a direct line a direct connection can be made to not only the legendary cars but some of the names we've talked about some of the dealerships uh bottom line and I think we kind of uh, close with this bottom line is bill drag racing today particularly as it might pertain to a fan relating to a specific car not necessarily a fuel burning car or something so exotic what do you see happening today to help kind of tie all that back in like like we like what was happening back in the 60s.
4: The very best thing that NHRA has done in a long time was introduce the factory showdown. This has rekindled the interest drag racing fans have had in in uh, in stock body drag racing. Pro stock cars now are tube chassis, uh, specially built, race only, uh, lightweight carbon fiber here kind of uh, you know creations that don't relate directly to anything any of us are driving. But when you have Ford and Chevy and Mopar now. All competing for, uh, you know, the prestige of having the fastest, most successful stock bodied uh, uh, production based powertrain out there on the drag strip. You know, some people have even suggested that the factory showdown replace Pro Stock, if you can believe that. I don't, yeah. I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I think th- that bodes very well, I think, for people who love drag racing to be able to go to the, to, the, to the races and bring back the brand loyalty that I think we've lost, you know, in the recent past.
2: Well said, Bill. Hey, on behalf of Matt and myself, thank you so much for joining us. And as always, man, we really appreciate your insight always good to be with you guys and jk i'll see you in arizona i think not uh, far from today glendale just down the road my friend see you there you've been listening to Meekim presents on the move
0: brought to you by state farm for more information visit Meekim.com and join us again next time as we take you inside the world of muscle and collector cars and more